0: The American League opener for 1969. The California Angels and the Seattle Pilots. Good evening, everybody. This is Don Wells with Dick Enberg and Dick Nelson. It's so good to have you with us from Anaheim Stadium. One of the new entries in the American League and the Western Division, the Seattle Pilots take on the Angels this evening. The Pilots, as part of the pregame ceremonies, have just been introduced. First of all, their starting lineup, then Joe Schultz, then the rest of the squad. And now the introduction of the starting nine for the California Ball Club, managed by Bill Rigney. So what can you possibly say? I have been privileged to put on hand now for all of the Angels' openers since 1961. But I have to say that this is one that uh, I have certainly looked forward to, and I think that mainly because of the men who are in blue, the Seattle Pilots, expansion of the American League, and the creation of divisional play. And it certainly should be the outstanding year in the American League of all time. This place, centennial year for baseball.
1: Welcome to Good Seats Still Available, a curious little podcast devoted to exploring what used to be in professional sports. Here's your host, Tim Hanlon. Hiya, friends. Uh, it's Tim Hanlon. How are you? Thank you so much for finding our little show. Uh, In the uh, the wilds of uh, podcast land and uh, we greatly appreciate you finding it and uh, and listening and hopefully uh, enjoying our conversation uh, this week here on good seats still available. It's our curious little podcast, our journey each week, our excursion, if you will, into what used to be in professional sports and uh, perhaps the most uh, quintessential example of what we're all about on this little show. Uh, is encompassed uh, in today's episode, and we're in uh, we're in the realm of baseball again. We're happy to be back, uh, even though it's the off season. A little hot stove, uh, we've got that fire burning uh, to keep going into some teams and some leagues uh, uh, within the realm of baseball. Uh, no longer with us for whatever reasons, and we can't think of a better one uh, than one that's uh, been sort of itching at us for uh, for quite some time. Even frankly, when we uh, all the way back from when we started this show almost two years ago. And that's the Seattle Pilots of 1969, the American League, for that matter. And that clip that you just heard uh, was from their very first uh, Major League regular season game. Uh, They were playing at uh, the California Angels, uh, and the date uh, was April 8th, 1969. The voice you just heard there was Don Wells uh, calling the game. Uh, he also with uh, Dick Enberg, uh, which you don't hear in that clip, but uh, was his uh, partner in crime, if you will, with the Angels broadcasts on KMPC radio uh, 710 on your AM dial. And of course, if you if you dial that up now, you're going to hear nothing but Korean language programming. But back then in 69, it was the flagship Gene Autry owned uh, 50,000 watt and then some flamethrower of uh, Angels baseball all across the Southland. And uh, I'm sure an extensive affiliate uh Uh, lineup of stations, Uh, but they were calling uh, that first game. It was obviously the uh, the season opener, uh, not only for the Angels, but the uh, franchise opener uh, for the Seattle Pilots. And that is the topic of our conversation today. The one year wonder, the 1969 season, the only season uh, of the Seattle Pilots of the American League. Our guest this week is Bill Mullins. He is the author of perhaps the uh, the most wide ranging and uh, expansive uh, investigation of uh, the story of the Seattle Pilots. It's called Becoming Big League, Seattle, the Pilots and Stadium Politics uh, came out a couple of years ago in University of Washington Press. And uh, it's a it's a great survey. Not only it does talk about the team and and, and what transpired on the field a, a bit, uh, but it also has a much longer arc uh, as the story as We're going to unwind uh, in our conversation in a few seconds here. It uh, goes back to literally the beginnings of the uh, 1960s, uh, things like um, the World's Fair of 62 and, and sort of the uh, the rumblings around uh, building a stadium and trying to attract a professional sports team uh, to Seattle, which during the 60s really was the third, I think, most populous uh, metropolitan area uh, on the West Coast and yet was effectively uh, bereft uh, of uh, of anything professional sports. Uh, at that time. And um, we're going to get into sort of the reasons why the reasons why uh, sports franchises uh, of a major league uh, variety were uh, part of the Seattle uh, uh, zeitgeist, or at least in certain circles of Seattle in terms of its uh, becoming, quote unquote, major league, uh, the fits and starts of such. And frankly, the you know, the uh, the groundwork that uh, kind of helped lead to uh, Major League Baseball awarding uh, a franchise, and we're going to get to it's the, the timing of that, which is pretty interesting. Uh, the, the team that became the Seattle Pilots uh, in 1969, and let's put it this way, uh, it, it wasn't a raging success, okay? The team itself wasn't all that bad. Uh, I, I think a lot of people who were there in 69 in Seattle have some very fond memories uh, of, uh, of the team. Uh, we're going to sort of end our show with a little bit of uh, even a theme song, uh, which uh, you want to stick around for, because, uh, you know, I think the uh, it was a very interesting time for Seattle and sports fans. Uh, but uh, let's put it this way. There were a bunch of elements there that sort of conspired against the team, some of which of its own doing, actually a lot of it of its own doing, uh, some of which actually was not of its own doing. Uh, stadium politics, for sure. And uh, a whole host of other sort of things that, uh, that made the pilot's uh, uh, adventure in 1969, one for the record books. And that's what we're going to be talking about here uh, today, this week, uh, with our guest Bill Mullins coming up in a couple of seconds. So stay tuned. It's uh, very enjoyable. And, of course, as always, very educational. I learned a whole bunch, uh, and I think you will as well. Um, And I think it's appropriate that uh, we not only uh, welcome you to the proceedings, but we also welcome, yes, a brand-new sponsor to our – our ever-growing roster of uh, of folks supporting our show. And we appreciate our friends, our new friends at Streaker Sports uh, for stepping up to the plate, if you will, uh, and uh, being a sponsor of our show. And we're ecstatic, uh, especially this week, because uh, the, not only do they have great uh, shirts and uh, uh, and wear uh, of teams and leagues and a lot of great sports history stuff uh, at streakersports.com, this week uh, it's appropriate because they have a beautiful 1969 replica Seattle Pilots T-shirt uh, in all kinds of different sizes. That's uh, it's in baby blue. It's it's a gorgeous color and it's got that original um, and uh, frankly somewhat iconic Pilots logo. Uh, we talk about it a little bit with uh, with Bill in a couple of seconds here in our chat, uh, but it's just it's 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 a, it's, a, it's a great logo. It's one of the better ones I think in modern baseball history. And uh, it is yours uh, for the uh, for the purchase at StreakerSports.com, and of course, before you make that purchase, before you check out, make sure you use the promo code Good Seats and get ten percent off. Uh, not only that purchase, but anything on StreakerSports.com. And we uh, again thank them for uh, being part of our uh, our little broadcast, and we thank you for checking them out. That's StreakerSports.com, and again, that promo code Good Seats uh, for ten percent off all of your purchases. Uh, when you go there early and often. And thank you, Streaker Sports. We look forward to more fun and frivolity with you. Hopefully, as the year progresses, and uh, I'm sure we got some great promotional concepts uh, between us to uh, to bring to you our beloved listeners. And um, well, this is uh, this is not why you uh, came to to listen to us to hear us uh, spout. Uh, Uh, promotional stuff, but we appreciate you checking it out. You came to listen to great conversations around teams and leagues no longer with us. And this is uh, this is our attempt this week to do so. And this is our uh, our chat uh, that we had just uh, at the end of uh, of the uh, calendar year of 2018 uh, with our new friend Bill Mullins. And we're talking about the Seattle Pilots of 1969. And uh, here's our chat coming up. We've been doing the show for about a year and a half, and and as I think I've I've told you on an email, you know the the idea is to sort of focus on uh, stories and teams and leagues uh, no longer you know around defunct or otherwise relocated or whatever, and and you know when I originally envisioned this show, uh, you know one of those teams that uh, struck me uh, as sort of a, a, a an everlasting enigma, right, was or is this uh, one year uh, wonder that is and was the Seattle Pilots, so. Uh, I, I'm enthralled with the topic, and I'm, I'm ecstatic that uh, we could use your uh, your book as the uh, uh, excuse to have an interview, at least a, or an introductory conversation. I guess would would probably be a more uh, layered conversation about uh, about the pilots. Um, before we get into it, though, maybe you could give our audience a sense of uh, who you are, what your background is, and how you stumbled across this story enough to uh, devote a, a hefty tome uh, to it.
2: Sure, I'm uh, I'm a retired uh professor of history my my specialty is in american history um i taught most of my career at oklahoma baptist university uh and actually the uh the pursuit of a um historical degree and the opportunity to teach uh is where the story of the the book uh, starts at any rate um i came to the university of washington to get my my ma and phd in history and of course uh it it was in 1968 69 and then 69 is the year uh, that the pilots played i got to see the pilots uh in a in a couple of games and then went uh, went home and by the time i made it back there were no more pilots um, so uh as i uh came to the the end of my career i retired uh from Oklahoma Baptist University uh we planned to move back to the The Northwest. I figured I needed something to do uh, in order to occupy my time, and I thought it would be really nice to research and write a book, and I thought the pilots would be just the the perfect thing. I'm a big baseball fan. Uh, I think I've been a Dodger fan probably since I was eight years old, uh, and I've I followed baseball all of my life, and so putting my my hobby interest together with my profession, um, I thought the pilots would be a, a really good subject. I kind of researched around and found out that there was um, a book that had already been uh, written uh, about the pilots, but it concentrated on primarily the on the field. Story of the of the pilots. It it didn't lack for uh, commentary on on what happened uh, to them uh, and some of the business things, but it was uh, it was a baseball book. And what I wanted to do was to write a a book about the business of, of baseball. Uh, and uh, as as you said, the unusual situation of the pilots uh, leaving uh, uh, the city after just uh, just one year of existence. So uh, I began researching. After we moved to the Seattle area and as I began the research I I realized that the story really could be told more broadly even than uh, the business end of the pilots that uh, in fact it could be uh, something of a history of Seattle and so I've tried to include uh, that and urban history um uh, a history of baseball on the field and everything in between uh for sure the story of the origin of the pilots and the disappearance uh, of the team and uh some of the reasons for uh the way that it that it all occurred uh over really a, a process of several years
1: well uh, the the pilots obviously was a 1969 baseball season story but uh as your book sort of uh circles around the beginnings of Uh, of the narrative and and sort of the setup of, of what ultimately happened. It actually goes way back earlier in the decade, right to uh, the world's fair. And, and maybe that's a good place to kind of lay a little groundwork for our audience about sort of, you know, what of Seattle and its, uh, its history, it's a, you know, it's fledglingness, I guess, as a, uh, as a, as a desirable place, not only to live, but it's its own desire to uh, perhaps, I guess uh, my words, uh, you know, fancy itself more major league, so to speak, and and uh, maybe you can kind of give us a little uh, starting point as to sort of uh, how this narrative gets going.
2: Right in the, in the book, I go uh, in fact even before the uh, the, the World's Fair, uh, I go back to 1960 when uh, there was actually a, a bond issue vote um, in in 1960 for a stadium not that many people were interested in it. I, I divide the city up into into three major players uh, in the pilot story anyway. There's the, the boosters, uh, there's the civic leaders, and there's the politicians. And truthfully, only the boosters were interested in a stadium uh, for a major league baseball team uh, and maybe for the uh the University of Washington Husky football team uh in 1960 uh the campaign was modest there were a few bumper stickers uh there were only three or four people who who really beat the drum for the uh the bond issue and when the people voted uh they voted uh against it uh it only got a 48% uh, vote and in the state of Washington it takes 60% um for for a bond issue to be uh, to be passed. So it fell well short of any possibility. And then um, the World's Fair is where the excitement began to pick up. Uh, I think Seattle began to realize that it was a big city. When I I came to it in 1968, um, I came from Southern California, the Los Angeles area, and the overwhelming sense was, here is a large city that doesn't know it's a large city. And I think there were plenty of people in the in the Puget Sound region who kind of wanted to keep it uh, that way. Um, but when the when the World's Fair ended up being a, a real success, uh, not only the boosters but some other people began to get a vision for uh, what can we do next. And one of those things that that might uh, might come from that uh, they thought was. Uh, a baseball team, an expansion team, or maybe uh, lure another team to uh, to Seattle, uh, and so they got busy on it. In 1964, Gabe Paul uh, and uh, William Daly of the Cleveland Indians came to Seattle, kind of testing it out to see if the uh, if the Indians might move uh, to Seattle. Probably it was a ploy to leverage some favorable stadium improvements uh, in in Cleveland, but you know they looked around they they found out there was nothing but a minor league stadium, and they went back home and negotiated with the city of Cleveland and got pretty much what they wanted but that um, that really piqued the interest I think of a lot of baseball uh, baseball fans in Seattle, uh, but it wasn't until 1966 and the possibility of the National Football League um, bringing a, a team to Seattle that that they began working again on uh, on a bond issue um, and that one looked like it was pretty much going to be accepted. Um, uh, it just seemed like everybody had endorsed it. The politicians endorsed it. Bankers endorsed it. The newspapers endorsed it. Um, even the religious community endorsed the uh, the bond issue with kind of an eye toward a Billy Graham crusade uh, as soon as the stadium opened up. But it seemed to run into some some rough going. The, the fellow who was the, the leader of the campaign did kind of a debate with, with people who were not so much for it and though he had been speaking articulately throughout the city for the bond issue he just seemed to fall down um, in this, this, not televised, but on, it was on the radio, uh, this debate, and he couldn't, he couldn't really explain very well why a private entity did not build the stadium, uh, whether or not the stadium uh, would be built if there was no team coming, where the stadium might be, uh, might be placed uh, in the city, and it, it seemed like the momentum for approval for that bond issue just turned around uh, several weeks ago. Weeks before the, the bond election, and so in 19, 1966, um, the, the bond issue for a stadium fell short of the 60 percent. Was, it was over 50 percent, uh, but it still wasn't enough. In the meantime, Charlie Finley came to town because he was looking for a place for his Kansas City A's and he was pretty interested in Seattle but he was also interested in in Oakland and maybe in uh in the the Dallas Fort Worth area uh he negotiated a little bit uh, the, the politicians were not very encouraging the uh, the mayor uh when um uh, when he came uh, negotiated pretty hard-nosed um but but finley what finley wanted was an option to leave the city if if the city did not vote positively for uh, for a stadium uh, because there was a, a third election for a stadium in 1968 and uh, he was he was looking in 1967 and so he wanted to make an agreement that if the if the bond issue went down in 1968. He could leave for somewhere else, and that that just wasn't really really workable. Um, uh, again, that that spurred people's interest that uh, an owner, a major league owner, was looking at Seattle uh, for uh, for a location for his team. Uh, and so in nineteen sixty eight there was a, a a kind of a multiple bond issue it, it included rapid transit, money for an aquarium parks, um, city improvement, infrastructure uh, improvement, and a stadium that, well, became the Kingdome, uh, $40 million for the Kingdome. And this time, 1968, I think Seattle had um, had grown up just a little bit more than, uh, than 1960. I think that they saw a real possibility uh, of a team pretty close in the future, um, and so Seattle voted for the, the Kingdome uh, the forty million dollars uh, for the kingdom in um, in February nineteen sixty eight. Um, so things were looking pretty good, and, and by that time, this is another part of the story. But by that time, the American League had granted Seattle a franchise, pending a, a positive vote on the kingdom
1: So why? So let's back up for a second. So why do you think uh, the sixties was so um, uh, jagged? I guess in terms of. This sort of on again, off again, fits and starts sort of uh, almost circular discussion around uh, anything relating to pro sports and uh, a facility or facilities necessary to uh, to attract it. It seems like there was sort of a very hot and cold kind of, uh, I don't know, civic feeling around uh, around the idea maybe of a pro sports franchise and or. Uh, footing the bill for such, and and I'm wondering what the debate was, I guess, civically about the the pluses and minuses of such.
2: Well, I, I think it was kind of a, a matter of recruiting the boosters. Um, they had been excited for a stadium since 1960, and what they they succeeded in doing was to draw more and more people uh, into their orbit uh, for uh, for a stadium. Uh, but Seattle, Seattle was pretty much a a hard sell. Uh, I, I think the people of Seattle were not really, really interested in paying higher property taxes to build. A stadium, and there, there were a lot of people who held out even into uh, into 1968. But more and more people saw saw the possibility, and it was it was always sold not as a money maker, but as something that would make. Seattle, big time, and that's you know that's part of the title of the book is becoming big league, and so this was a process of becoming, and I think more and more people gained a vision of what Seattle could be or what it was actually becoming um, between 1960 and 1968, and it seemed it seemed to accelerate, say from 1966 to 68. Um, Seattle is not a red-hot baseball town, even even today. Uh, and in those days, um, it as far as a sports city, it was Husky football all the way. In fact, the the two major things were Husky football and the hydroplane races um, in the in the summer on uh, on Lake Washington. And with the beginning of the interest of the National Football League, I think more more Seattleites or interested uh were open to the possibility of paying some taxes uh so that a sports stadium could be uh could be built. And so the combination of baseball and football I think really really made a difference. But even by nineteen sixty eight um I, I think Seattle was somewhere just just a little bit beyond lukewarm of uh, for a baseball team and for paying for a baseball stadium. I did a little bit of uh, of statistical analysis, and what I found was that the, the folks who were blue-collar workers, who were kind of middle class to lower middle class, were the ones who were the most resistant uh, to voting for, uh, for the stadium. The people, interestingly, the people who are well off, um, I think they saw it as kind of a Um, um, a a civic advancement and they voted for the stadium the people who are not so well off were still willing to tax themselves uh, for something that maybe they enjoyed and and the people in the middle um, came reluctantly uh, to, to voting for a stadium. And I think, you know, as you put it, it, it seems like it starts and stops. But I think it's a, um, it's a progressive recruitment of this middle group, um, more and more of them coming uh, to supporting a team, to building a stadium. Um, and, and again, when the pilots were here, uh, I really doubt that the middle class was fully on board for having to pay for a stadium or shelling out uh, for a ticket to go to a a baseball team uh baseball game more than once during the season.
1: Well, that's interesting too. There's also another sort of angle to this, too, right? You know, the the uh the 60s especially sort of the latter half of the decade, right? Where it was almost sort of this uh I don't know, maybe the big the beginnings of an awakening, I guess, on professional sports uh around things like expansion, right? Uh the great expansion mm-hmm. of NHL uh in uh, in 67 68 uh you know you had the uh, the beginnings of the American Basketball Association the first of what became just a litany of challenger leagues uh, that uh, went way, way into the 70s uh, you're mentioning the uh the potential outreach of the NFL obviously uh, baseball had expanded albeit pretty slowly and 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 1967 also was the arrival of oh yeah wait for it the Seattle SuperSonics of the NBA now now granted not you know the nba of what we know today right sort of much more of a, a, a i want to say looser collective but certainly it was but it was basketball it was one of the big four major sports leagues right and uh in many respects right it it had to be a shot in the arm uh to to seattle's uh culture and 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 various uh elements of the economic uh, uh fabric of the of the city to kind of give it uh, if you will literally and figuratively some uh, some major league status that might then now also perhaps mean uh, more interest in other pro sports too,
2: right? And and the Sonics were are a part of the story. I'm not sure how important, but they're there. The, the Sonics are were the first major league team that came to Seattle because they uh, they made it to Seattle in 1967. Um, they they came the way a number of teams came to to Seattle. Um, there was ownership that was out of the city. And they brought a team to Seattle, and that's kind of the way the pilots came as well. Um, again, the, this group of, of people who I, I call the boosters—they um, were always talking to uh, the American League or the National League about uh, about having a team, but the politicians were um, were just totally quiet uh, about that. There was there was no no group beating the drum, and the civic leaders, the people who are the business folk um in in downtown um they welcomed sports they did have that feeling they they were convinced by the boosters that having a major league team would make the city a major league city a big league city um but they weren't willing to to just really work for it uh, there were comparisons throughout this whole story of the rise and the fall of the pilots of how if this had been in then put in your city Kansas City if this would have been in Anaheim if this would have been in my city said major league owners we would have raised money in 10 days and that just never happened uh, in Seattle Boeing is one of the one of the parts of it Boeing is kind of a curious curious part of Seattle um, it's what made Seattle in those days. It was really a company town uh in the nineteen sixties. Boeing was everything, but Boeing really held itself aloof from uh, from Seattle culture, from Seattle politics, uh, from from Seattle charity. Um Boeing said, Well, we have a lot of employees and they will be active in your city and that will be our contribution. To the city, but there was nobody that was a part of Boeing that took the lead in in recruiting the Sonics, the Seahawks, um, or the pilots uh, to to Seattle. And without Boeing, that's that's an important economic aspect that just, just goes missing um, from from the story of of bringing sports to what was really a a big city. Yeah,
1: right. It was the uh, it, it was I still think it is. Well, I don't I, I don't know geographically now, but at the time, right, it was the what, third largest uh, population center on the West Coast. Right. Outside of the two. Big well, in California.
2: Right. And it, it was the 15th largest media uh, market in the entire United States. Yeah, I mean, so and, it was it was due for major league sports. Yeah. Uh, well, by numbers.
1: Yeah, and that, 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 so that, that, again, you know, and having lived there for a period of time too, I there is a, uh, how can I best put it, a provincial quality to Seattle, which I think is, is, <laughs> and the Pacific Northwest generally, which I think is, is, is an amazing, uh, uh, um, not only curiosity, but, uh, uh, admirable, uh, sort of spirit. But I also, um, yeah, again, again, this is against the backdrop of, of expansion and, and pro sports and, um, it's just interesting to sort of hear sort of the general, um, I don't know, uh, ambivalence, I guess, uh, uh on certain levels, uh, uh, around this, but yet it, it didn't stop, uh, entities from, from pushing the baseball thing. And, and I guess the, you know, the, the way you describe it, you know, you have your, uh, your boosters that are sort of making some inroads. Um, maybe we can get a little closer to, uh, the lead up to the actual, uh, formation and the, uh. Uh, the events sort of surrounding the creation of this franchise. Um, maybe you can want to delve into the sort of like the 1967, 66, 67 ish kind of uh, uh, lead up period, because it seems to me that uh, the chief cook and bottle washer behind this franchise was literally a baseball guy. One, you know, very much entrenched with uh, a relatively successful uh, minor league uh, team in Seattle, the Pacific Coast League of, uh, of the years. Um, maybe mm-hmm. you give us a story of sort of how he sort of came about, and and I guess you know without very much money, kind of became kind of the central leader of all this.
2: Well, he certainly was the local face of the of the pilots, and we're talking about uh, Dewey Soriano, um, who was really a pretty good baseball fellow. And um, in, in the book, I kind of sketch out a, a possibility uh, of him. Uh, becoming commissioner of baseball, it didn't work that way, but he had been a general manager of a couple of minor minor league teams um when the pilots um, were uh, were created. he was the president of the pacific coast league um and he and his brother uh were really important important people um and and i guess. Financing the pilots and getting them getting them all set up. Uh, the story really kind of goes back to Charlie Finley wandering around looking for a place to move his his Kansas City A's. Uh, he was really upset uh, with with Kansas City. They had promised him some things, but not on paper. Uh, they had reneged on those promises. And, you know, being the kind of um, blustering fellow that he was, uh, he wasn't going to fool around with Kansas City anymore. He wanted, he wanted a new place. And as I said, he had, he had looked at Seattle, but wasn't able to come to any agreement that he was satisfied with. And so he ended up in Oakland. The American League gave him permission uh, to move to Oakland, and Senator Stewart Symington, who was one of the senators from Missouri, uh, told the American League that um, that he would um, campaign as hard as he could in the Senate um, to end baseball's antitrust uh, exemption, Uh-oh. and that's one of the most precious things that. The you know the baseballers prize uh, for themselves the major league baseball prizes for uh, for itself and so they got busy right away uh, and they they expanded um, or or voted an expansion team to Kansas City and they needed another one to balance it out and they voted one for Seattle again the boosters had always been talking to American League uh, officials, Joe Cronin, the president of the American League particularly, about the possibility of a team in Seattle, but it was really the American League that pursued Seattle as much as Seattle pursuing the American League. Um, at that at that particular meeting, um, when the vote was taken in nineteen sixty seven, um, there were there were one or two city officials, but not the mayor, um uh, not the not the head of the, the county uh county council. Uh they were they were minor minor officials. And the American League just kinda of hauled off and said, Seattle, you're it Symington pressed them to uh to start the, the team in Kansas City and Seattle in 1969. So there was only about, well, there was just a one-season lead time for them to get ready, and for sure, for Seattle, that just wasn't enough. Well, so, so it's really a case. Go ahead.
1: I was going to say, so Symington, right? So this, this is this is it's ironic, right? Because you know you had uh, you had Finley kind of uh, uh, leaving Kansas City, and yet you have the senator from from the state of Missouri who's you know pushing to. Uh, deal with the loss of this A's franchise with a replacement franchise literally the next season in '68. Um, this really—it's so—it seems to me that 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 Symington, you know, was ca- ca- unwittingly almost the uh, uh, the undermining force of of what became the Pilots' uh, only season. But it was because he wanted to have that Kansas City. So here, here's the thing: my my understanding is that. The the original expansion of the new Kansas City, what became the Royals franchise, and mm-hmm. the Seattle Pilots weren't supposed to start until 1971, but it was because of Symington that all of it, both teams, were pushed up to 68 because he was fearful of losing Kansas City as a baseball market altogether.
2: That's right. Um, Syming, Symington just kind of laid it down is that he wouldn't relent uh, unless the season started you know the 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 team was was in place by 68 but the season doesn't start until the the 1969 season and that just wasn't enough preparation time for Dewey Soriano um and and the other people that were working with him um, we'll, we'll get into this story in just a moment. Uh, but, um, you know, the, the stadium that they played in was the minor league stadium in Seattle. It's called six stadium named for, um, Adolf sick, who was, a uh, Rainier's brewer, um, Brewery head, uh, who had had owned the Rainiers baseball team for some long time, the minor league team. Um, and the stadium just wasn't ready by opening day in in 1969. But there were all kinds of complications that they had to work work through to even get it close uh, to being ready.
1: Before we get into the season, though, let, maybe we just, I want circle back on, on Soriano, because this was not a guy who had the dough, right? I mean, he... Now, he had, the, he had the wherewithal to sort of become sort of the face and the, uh, the manager, and albeit, you know, a baseball pro, right, uh, around the team, mm-hmm. which is great. But um, had, maybe you can give our audience a sense of sort of how the money came about to sort of uh, fund and or, uh, you know, manage, if you will, the franchise. Um, it wasn't from his sources, was it?
2: No, it really wasn't. The, the American League um, had had recruited him and it didn't seem like there was anybody else in Seattle or anywhere uh who wanted to uh to own the team and so the first announcement was that the Soriano brothers uh had recruited all uh local people and that they would be fully funded and it would be local ownership and all of that was untrue um it it turned out that Soriano's had had some money but the person that that the Sorianos had to go to was the former owner of the Cleveland Indians, William Daly. When Daly had come to Seattle to kind of look at it in one thousand nine hundred and sixty four he must have been impressed because he was willing uh, to put in a, a good deal of his money uh, to uh, to own the pilots. He had a forty seven percent stake, and that was by far the largest stake that anybody had uh, in the pilots and so it was bill daley 's team. Um, again a, a former owner, so uh everybody in the in the lodge uh knew the fellow and they were happy with that. Uh most people knew the Soriano brothers. Uh Dewey was the was the leader, Max his brother, uh helped him along and so that was pretty good um, to to have the uh, the Sorianos as the, as the Seattle representatives, uh, of the team. And then there were other just minor, uh, minor owners both in Cleveland, uh, and in, in Seattle. But Bill Daly, um, was the, was the man who owned the pilots and, and that's, that's really important. Um, did, you,
1: did you get any? I'm sorry. Did you get any sense of, of sort of how that sort of little bromance happened? I mean, I, obviously, daily coming to Seattle to kind of sniff out the market, maybe for the Indians. But I mean, any other backstory as to like how they created a friendship, and or you know, a couple of years later, where it was enough where uh, Soriano could you know literally broach the idea of literally becoming the the, the major minority owner of this team.
2: Uh, it really seems as though it's merely a business partnership. It's not like a, a longstanding friendship. Um, I think the Soriano's probably reached out uh, to try to contact somebody who was, uh, who had enough money. Uh, it could be that somebody in the American league offices uh, got these guys in touch. Um, but, you know, daily just as he appeared on the scene uh said that he really wouldn't mind working with the Sorianos and and the way that he put it to me made it sound like they've got a good reputation I'm willing to work with these guys um and we'll get to know one another as we go go down the road
1: very interesting um well okay so that uh but it didn't seem to be well okay so the money is there at least in the in the beginning it seems and um but the the time as you as you pointed out before is, is now not on their side right there there is literally no time to waste to kind of get this franchise up and running uh, to begin the 1969 season which uh, you know h- how does that happen right doesn't seem like it uh, it allows for very much in the way of uh, quality or infrastructure and um, I mean you mentioned the stadium but what of that and what else uh, in the uh, in, in the months that led up it seems like it was almost uh, I don't know, shall we say doomed from the start? But maybe I'm. It, I'm
2: it going certainly ahead. wasn't auspicious, um, and they made some, you know, made some interesting um, headway in trying to lure Seattleites into the, um, you know, into the into the stadium. Uh, they had a name the team contest. Uh, there were a variety of names that were that were suggested, like the Green Sox, the Rainiers, the Mariners. Um, and, and some others um, but um, it was pretty clear that pilots would be a pretty good pick if you were a part of this contest because Dewey Soriano, as well as being a baseball man, was a harbor pilot um, and so it wasn't a surprise to the the press relations fellow that pilots ended up being the name uh, for the team. And it's kind of clever because uh, it denotes both the, the waterborne uh, aspect, um, you know, the Puget Sound and the Pacific Ocean, uh, for, for being a, a pilot, uh, but also the Boeing connection, uh, and so the logo was a ship's steering wheel with a baseball in the middle with a couple of little angel wings, uh, off to the side to, to make people think of both airline pilots, um, and, uh, and seagoing pilots as well. Um, it's it's a,
1: it's a great. I mean, for those logo nerds out there who listen to this show, yeah. uh, it's it's uh, it's charming, and uh, it's uh, I think it's it just it, it the charm uh, it continues. Uh, I think even more so because it only lasted for a year, but it's a really it's a very cool logo, and uh, it's a very interesting uh, dynamic of how how you sort of blend those two or those three sort of dimensions together all in one.
2: That's right, and and the uniforms reflected that as well. the The uniforms were gold and blue uh the sleeves had stripes uh, like a airline pilot or a, a ship's captain uh but the main thing were the caps um a nice uh, a nice s on the cap but on the bill of the cap uh was the gold braid the scrambled eggs uh as they as they call it uh it it was a captain's cap uh, that the players wore um, and and I, I think that's the best best part probably uh, of the pilots' history is the uh, is the caps of the the pilots. Um, getting into the, the the stadium part, there was a long argument with the city. Uh, the city had bought Six Stadium um, by by 1968, and so the negotiations went on um, between Dewey Soriano uh, and and the mayor, Dorm Breman. Um, they were long, they were grueling. Um, gave Soriano, um, a a deal as they negotiated that really wasn't quite as good as the deal that Charlie Finley, uh, refused to embrace. Um, the pilots had to pay $165,000 a year for five years and there was just no way that they would be in Six Stadium for five years. Four years would have been the maximum had things gone the way they were supposed to go. So they were paying a, a year's premium in order to get the lease. Um, and the city, in return, would pay... Um, just over 1.1 million in order to install enough seats. Nobody seems to know how many seats there were in the minor league six stadium. 11,000 is the the number that most people use. And the American League wanted 28,000 seats. Uh, to be placed in six uh, six Stadium. That was going to be hard to do uh, in a period of now less than a year. And they couldn't begin the construction. They couldn't even draw draw up plans until Soriano and the Mayor Brayman had finished negotiating. And they negotiated and negotiated, finally came up with a deal. And even then, the city council almost didn't vote for it. Um, One of the councilmen Said, well, all of this money that should go go for a library um, in a in a suburb uh, of one of the neighborhoods uh, of Seattle. It, it passed, but it didn't pass easily. And so it was it was pretty deep into October uh, when they began the renovations on um, on on Six Stadium. Um, and and you, having lived in Seattle, and anybody that's been in Seattle, know that boy, if you begin construction in October it's going to be hard. It's going to be really, really wet. Um, it might be cold, uh, but there's going to be a lot of mud, uh, not just dirt uh, to, to deal with. Uh, and that uh, that turned out to be the case. The other problem was that they were working on a consultant's estimate of how much it would cost. And when they, they sent out the bids, uh, the bids came in at 65% above that estimate. And so they had to negotiate again on what the stadium was going to be like. Um, the 28,000 seats came down to 25,000 seats. Uh, the quality of the lighting of the field uh, was reduced. It wasn't, well, I guess it was major league quality, but just barely. Uh, plywood was used wherever plywood could be used rather than sturdier structures to uh, to renovate the field. And I'm not sure if it was true or not, um, but Bob Short, who was the owner of the then uh, Washington Senators, uh, when he came to see um, Six Stadium with, with his team, he said that the box seats were nothing more than a bunch of uh, metal folding chairs like you'd find at a funeral home, um, nobody said that the that the stadium measured up to major, major league stand uh, standards um as as the the season went on uh the american league never signed off um on six stadium as something that it it uh, approved of and there were other problems the new seats that they put in began to warp midway through the season as they put in the the seats, it wasn't until the second homestand that all of the twenty-five thousand seats had been installed. And as I was saying earlier, uh, when people came to opening day, uh, if they came really early, they could still hear the hammers ringing uh, as bleachers were being put into place for probably what was around nineteen thousand seats uh, for opening day um, at the second homestand. Um Some of the fans kind of looked at their clothing and they had blue stains on it. The paint wasn 't dry yet from the seats that they were uh, they were sitting in uh, and finally, the installer of the uh, of the seats had to pay the uh, the cleaning bill or pay for new suits uh, for the people who had uh, picked up that paint on their uh, on their clothing and as the season went on, it turned out. Um, the water pressure wasn't sufficient. When there was uh, just a little bit over average attendance, around, seventh, around the seventh inning, the water pressure dropped dramatically. Um, there, there's a story of uh, Joe Pepitone, the first baseman for the Yankees, left the game early, went into the, um, the clubhouse, the visiting clubhouse to shower and he came running out of the clubhouse all all soaked up uh into the restaurant area i hope wearing a towel um uh, yelling uh, about what happened to the water? There was no hot water. Uh, the water pressure was, uh, was so low. Um, and it turned out that the, the water main that went into the, the stadium was a six inch water main. And for the stadium, it was necessary to have an eight inch water, uh, water main. Uh, they didn't change that until the season had come to a close. Um, in order to activate the lights for a night game, somebody had to climb up one of the poles um, in order to get them going. Um, there were, there were clogs, uh, that affected, um, I I think sand that got into the electronics of the PA system. And at least once a fire broke out in an electrical box because, uh, it had shorted out. Uh, and so all of those problems afflicted the pilots, uh, as they went on and Dewey Soriano made a big deal out of it. um, it would have been a good idea to make a big deal with the city, but not make a big deal in the, in the newspapers because that meant that um, the fans were reading about what a crummy stadium it was. um, And it was kind of less likely that they would come out to sit on, well, bleachers that were warping that had no backs um, in a stadium that was not really properly constructed. Um, So that, that was, that was really a problem. One more problem that, that I think Soriano brought on himself was the ticket prices. The Pilots had among the highest ticket prices in all of the major leagues. Uh, their highest ticket was $6. The next highest was like $4 in San Francisco. Uh, their cheap tickets were two fifty. when you could see a Yankee game for $0.75 cents in the, the far reaches of Yankee Stadium. Um, one, of the, one of the newspaper reporters really reacted well um, when he said, Great Soriano, where are the cheap seats? And there just weren't cheap seats in, in Six Stadium. And I think that um, Soriano kind of had an idea that because it was Major League Baseball, he could charge more and the people would come out, you know, even with higher charges. And that was a really serious miscalculation.
1: All right, time for me to catch my breath, get a cool, tasty beverage, and uh, remind you while we do so that uh, our friends at Audible uh, are here to uh, remind you that uh, you can get a free audiobook download uh, of your choice from over 180,000 titles uh, if you go to audibletrial.com/goodseats and uh, use that link, of course, to uh, try for yourself a free audiobook on us, uh, gratis, if you will. And you will love the idea of audiobooks. It's uh, it's an awesome way to kill time uh, and uh, occupy and stimulate your mind, uh, perhaps when your eyes are busy uh, doing uh, something else. And, of course, there are plenty of uh, interesting books to be found, especially in the world of sports and sports history. I think our audience might enjoy a few of these, of course, including... Uh, the seminal work by uh, baseball uh, legend Jim Bouton. It's called Ball Four. It is uh, not only written, but it's also narrated by him. You could use your free credit for that book. And, of course, as you know, Ball Four uh, centers around the 1969 uh, one-year wonder that is the uh, yeah, was the Seattle Pilots of Major League Baseball, but obviously the, uh, the background for a whole lot of other observations about the sport of baseball. And it remains to this day uh, perhaps... Uh, one of the most celebrated writings about the sport of baseball uh, in this country. Of course, you can also if you're not a big baseball fan, you can go into the world of soccer uh, with uh, the autobiography called My Turn by Johan Cruyff, the uh, uh, late Johan Cruyff, uh, perhaps one of the world's best ever uh, soccer players. Uh, he of Dutch heritage, of course, uh, plenty of uh, a great legendary years at club play as well as national team play. Uh, for the Dutch team, as well as for our audience, maybe a little bit of interest, uh, his journeys in the North American Soccer League in the late 70s and early 80s with the uh, Washington Diplomats uh, and the uh, Los Angeles Aztecs. And of course, if you're into football, uh, there's probably no better book, especially if you find yourself uh, really interested in the sort of deep and rich history of the NFL, with uh, the book called NFL Football, A History of America's New National Pastime. It is written by Richard Cropot and narrated by Marlon May. That too uh, is uh, an audiobook that you could choose from over, like I said, uh, 180,000 titles. Uh, there's got to be something in there that's going to be of interest to you. And by all means, give it a try. And we appreciate you doing so at audibletrial.com slash goodseats. And again, you're going to get your free uh, audiobook download. You can cancel it anytime. And again, even if you cancel it, you can keep that book as long as your device exists. So again, we appreciate it. Give it a try. audibletrial.com slash goodseats. And now back to our conversation so what uh, six stadium right this is not like a brand new even temporary facility right and it had been around for many years right as the as the May- 1938 right for, for the rain years right so there had to be some basic level of uh you know of of uh, capability and, and infrastructure there. Right. I mean, yeah, I mean, it was obviously being asked, uh, to become larger and more quote unquote major league, uh, uh, appropriate, but, uh, you know, all these stories about the water and all this other, I mean, is that just simply because it was, uh, being asked and or pushed to become something bigger than it was maybe capable of becoming structurally?
2: That's exactly it. Yeah. Um, Again, the, the, the water pressure was a problem when it was just a little bit over average attendance. Um, th- that level of, of attendance, around 8,000, I think, uh, was not likely to come out for a minor league game, so it wasn't was ever a problem when, um, when the numbers were that low. And again, if it was 11,000 seats, it was really an unusual game that would tax the water supply. Um, in the case of the pilots, um, there were a number of, of nights and days um, when there were so many fans and fans using the restrooms and so on uh, that the water just wasn't wasn't enough.
1: All right. So another question then is, was it always envisioned that six would the six stadium would be uh, a a temporary venue while this kingdom or I don't know if it was named by then during the during mm-hmm. the, the bidding uh, or the voting? um uh, and what was the timing of this new stadium supposed to be? Because it seems like, you know, if at least people could agree that this was a temporary solution for a set period of time, we can kind of all get around this. And, and, you know, ultimately we know what the goal in mind is, which is the ultimate new stadium. But it seems like even that wasn't sort of fully figured out maybe because of some of the negotiations that were going on around six stadium.
2: The, the American league put into its, its, Provisions for the Seattle Pilots that construction would have to begin before the end of 1970. Um, on it was called for a long time the King County Multipurpose Stadium, and finally just commonly called the Kingdome. Uh, and so, Sorry, were they were they, uh, grounded,
1: were they worried it actually wouldn't get started, even though it was voted in?
2: It. You know, it was one of those things of what happens if there's construction problems, and 1970 was really pretty generous because the vote was in February 1968, um, and so construction really had to get started by by 1970 if things were to go along right, and and again, the pilots were kind of forced into into a five year lease on uh, on Sixth Stadium, but I think they thought they would be out in four and maybe even in three, uh, three years. And, you know, it turned out the Kingdome was not, ground wasn't broken until 1972. Um, and uh, the stadium wasn't finished until 1976. So, the the big hope that the Sorianos and that Bill Daly had uh, of getting out of six stadium into a real major league stadium and um, with, with adequate seating, well, with a large seating, 40,000 plus uh, seats. Um, the big hope began to just kind of go further and further off into the distance. There was a, there was a whole big wrangle about where the kingdom was going to be built um, the uh, the consultants suggested that it be built uh, somewhat south of the city, uh, in an industrial area because it would cost less there. Um, the civic leaders came alive and said, "No, you're not going to do that. We need to have a a stadium." This downtown we can't we can 't take the stadium uh, out of downtown, and so they suggested uh, the site of the seattle world's Fair that now the Seattle Center, um, that the stadium be built there, really near where what is today key arena, the old Seattle Coliseum where the Sonics played, um, so that it would be all just right in the downtown area. Um, at, In in the state of Washington, there is the initiative process. You get enough signatures on a petition. uh, You can vote on almost anything. Um, And there was a real outcry about building the kingdom at the Seattle Center, uh, partly because it would spoil the center with this huge building, uh, partly because there would almost surely be cost overruns over the 40 million uh, that the people had voted. Uh, And so the petition uh, the petition was circulated. It got enough signatures. Uh, in 1970, after the pilots had left, there was a vote, and uh, the Seattle center site was rejected by the people of Seattle, and they had to go through the siting process once again. So there, there are all kinds of difficulties um, in moving from six to the kingdom because there are all kinds of difficulties in getting the kingdom built.
1: All right. So I got, I got two more questions related to this. Was there any other place besides six stadium uh, that could have been uh, a temporary location for this team, say in 1970, if there had been a second season uh, or, or in any of the following seasons, given the delay in this kingdom uh, site selection process and construction process, uh, or was there No. no other choice in this city?
2: there really was no other choice the only other large stadium uh in the in the city was husky stadium and um husky stadium was just it wasn't a real possibility uh for for baseball
1: yeah because it was a football centric uh, construction
2: yeah i mean i mean the coliseum was sort of um worked uh, worked for the dodgers uh, but Husky Stadium wasn't, wasn't the Coliseum. It wasn't as large a, uh, a place. So there was no place to go. The, the argument, the discussion, uh, as the pilots were beginning to leave was a discussion over who was going to pay for further renovations to make Six Stadium, let's say equivalent to Seal Stadium in San Francisco, you know, where the, um, where the Giants played for at least a year, maybe two years, uh, before they, they went to Candlestick.
1: All right. Here's the last question on that one. Then. So, so, uh, and this is sort of a little forwarding to the story, but like after the team has, you know, has left for uh, a, a, a bunch of reasons we'll get into in a second. Um, was there any, what was the thinking then once the team had left, uh, was there anything that, that then caused certain people in the mixture to pause the thought about the stadium? I mean, you know, they had lost the team, right? And yet the stadium had been voted in prior to the team's arrival or during the team's arrival. And now the team was gone. So I'm wondering if people sort of had some remorse about following through with this stadium uh, now that the team had left. Or did they kind of redouble their efforts and go, you know what? If we don't build this stadium, we're never going to have a shot at anything professional, baseball or otherwise.
2: And this is the real flip flop in, in the Seattle political landscape. Um, a, a city that was, like I said, just a little bit beyond lukewarm uh, for a stadium for a uh, for a team. Uh, it, it really changed around, and and I, I think it was it owed to just one individual. Um, John Spellman became the county executive. That's sort of like being the mayor of the county. And the stadium was was a county undertaking. Uh, so it was his responsibility. And um, amazingly enough, he didn't blink an eye. He said, yeah, we're going to build this building. Uh, even without a team, we're going to be searching for a team uh, as we build it. Uh, but he didn't hesitate at all to continue the building process. And I give him a, a lot of credit because I'm a baseball fan, and I think that building the stadium was a good thing to do. Uh, I give him a lot of credit uh, for, for forging ahead uh, when almost the re- well, the rest of the Seattle City political landscape probably would have just thrown up their hands and put the money in the bank for some later day.
1: Uh, it's all it's all very interesting. All right. So um, let's get into the and We don't have to go through, you know, sort of the, the on field stuff. But I know your book does touch on on some of the some of the issues. But um, I, I guess, I, I uh, you know, at some point, you know, God forbid, we'll be able to get I'd love to get Jim Bouton before he just sort of gives up doing interviews. And, um, you know, and <clears throat> there are a bunch there are a bunch of other sort of uh, players and, and, and related sort of things that we can do, hopefully. To get more about sort of the on-field performance and all that kind of stuff, but but maybe you can sort of uh, give our audience a sense of encapsulating, I guess, sort of what this season was all about. Because you had high ticket prices, Uh, it wasn't the least attended team in the major leagues, but it was fairly close. Um,
2: Yeah, it was about fifth.
1: Yeah, and and the and the on-field performance was not bad. I mean, it was not great, but you know they weren't sort of completely. They didn't lose every game, right? how did how did the season sort of unfold, and 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 sort of when did the wheels truly come off, and and why, in your estimation? Well,
2: it, it, for an expansion team, it didn't go badly um, through July. Um, they would have winning streaks. They would have losing streaks into July, into the just the very first part of August. They were in third place in the Western Division. Um, Joe Schultz just made a he's the manager, uh, made an offhand comment of, you know, I think this team could end up in third place. Um, He really wished the rest of the season he had never said that uh, because the general manager, Marvin Milks, pretty well held him to it. Uh, Milks was a, not type A, he was type A-plus um, and and wanted to win at all costs, not the kind of general manager that an expansion team uh, really needs to have. But he really pressed Schultz uh, on his third-place prediction. And they held third place, amazingly enough, behind Oakland and Minnesota uh, those, those years uh, until July. And then the wheels did come off in August. And I think, that, I think the reason was that the, the pilots in the expansion draft had drafted mainly older name players. Um, By the expansion draft, I I think the pilot's front office that Soriano knew that he was in some trouble uh, luring fans to the ballpark and that he needed names in order to get them there. So there's Don Mincher and Tommy Davis and um, uh, Gary Bell and Steve Barber. Um, who hopefully would be recognizable enough names to to come to the ballpark, but the problem with that is that these older guys began to break down uh, as the as the season came to a close, and uh, there are plenty of people on the disabled list uh, or just sitting out a few days by August and september uh, that combined with the fact that. Um, the pilots had to play Baltimore and Detroit a large number of times um in in August and september um, meant that the season just just crashed uh, The pilots finished last in the in the western division um, and um again I, I they were kind of a representative team interestingly enough, they had the same record the pilots had the same record as the Mariners did their first year. Uh, so Seattle, by then, had, uh, by the time the Mariners co- had come, uh, uh, were probably used to uh, teams that uh, were losing up upwards to a hundred games. Um, I think the Cleveland Indians had more losses than the Pilots, um, but the Pilots were second to the last in the American League.
1: So, what was going on during the season in terms of of, of marketing and and I guess the, maybe the story of the team? Like, how much of this sort of you know. The team wasn't really drawing well and or making money and or wasn't well capitalized. I mean, how much of that was sort of leaking out, uh, either planted or, or discovered, I guess, by the press and the fans? Because, you know, I, you know we go into 1970. There's a spring season, right? Or uh, the spring trading, yeah. right? This, this is I guess I want to get a little bit of a, an understanding of sort of how the how this uh, uh, the unfolding of the team or the undoing of the team sort of kind of played out. Uh, how much was known and how much was kind of not really known by the fan base and the, and the civic leaders about what was going on with this team. Well,
2: uh, the, the fans, the fans knew that six stadium was not in really, really good shape. um, uh, uh, again, there, there were the seats, the bleachers, the newly, uh, constructed bleachers were beginning to warp. Um, anybody who came out once and sat in the bleachers knew they were uncomfortable because they were just boards, uh, to, to sit on. um, the The promotions that they that they held were not the greatest. Uh, Harold Parrott had been hired uh, as the the public relations promotions guy. He had worked for the Dodgers forever. Um, you know, he was old enough to have have written for the Brooklyn Eagle newspaper, same one that Walt Whitman wrote for. Uh, although I don't think he knew Walt Whitman, um, but. Uh, Harold Parrott was a was a long, long time major league promoter. He had worked for the Dodgers forever. He would worked for the Angels for a couple of years. He was hired by the Pilots to uh, to get Seattle all excited about their new baseball team, and the Pilots found out that they just plain couldn't afford Harold Parrott. He was given um, a larger salary uh, than he had had with the Angels or with the Dodgers to lure him to uh, to Seattle. And by June, they had let him go um There's some other problems with Harold Parrott as well. there's some um misfeasance at least story. Came across that I think I've conveniently forgotten, but but anyway I have a feeling that he was let go for other reasons besides his salary. But that was the that was the main problem. They just couldn't afford him, uh, and so they just kind of jury rigged uh, some promotions. The best promotion they had was a bat day um, in uh, in early August. Uh, Twenty three thousand people came out. That was the top top attendance, um, and and the odd thing was. It was the same day as the hydroplanes were racing. Um, and again, hydroplane racing is a big, big deal in Seattle. Not so much today, but boy, in 1969, that's the place to be is out on Lake Washington watching the, the hydroplanes tool to around uh, Lake, Lake Washington. But they took a chance. They offered bats and they had their highest attendance day uh, on that particular Sunday. They had some family nights. Uh, they had Kiwanis night. They had Boys and Girls Clubs night, or I guess it was just then Boys Clubs nights. They didn't seem to work with the representatives of these clubs very well. Uh, and so even though the attendance got a boost, I don't think they sold as many tickets as they might have uh had had the front office people been working a little bit harder um and um reaching out uh just a little bit better uh than they did. The the total attendance for the whole year was 677,000. They had estimated that probably 800,000 was break even and when the season started they kind of figured they'd have a million. Uh and so the 677 had to be just really really disappointing.
1: So at what point does Daly start to panic?
2: I think he's, he's pretty upset by the time he realizes the Kingdome or the, the multi-purpose stadium is not going to be built. He gets uh, kicked around uh, in the newspapers. The, the beat writer for the Seattle Times wrote a column in, in I guess, August or early September uh, titled, Won't You Go Home, Bill Daly?" Um, and really chewed him out. And I, I'm not sure if that was the tipping point. He was already looking around uh, for some place to move, and he had said, you know, I'm going to give this city one more year, and we'll just see. And that's what, what kicked off this column. And I think by the time the column was written, William Daly was ready to find a buyer. Uh, For the pilots. Now, one of the important one of the important parts of the story is that Daly had guaranteed that he would fork up as much as eight million dollars to subsidize the pilots uh, if they ran into really tough times. Um, Had he done that, the pilots would have been here at least a second year. Nobody seemed to ask him for it. The American League knew that he had made uh, at least a guarantee. He had written, signed a guarantee that he would, uh he would at least provide 62% of that $8 million. And he had said verbally uh to one of the owners that he he'd do the whole 8 million and nobody held him to it. And so, um, I, I think by by August, certainly by September, Daly was looking around for somebody to buy the team, and by October, by by the World Series, he had negotiated with uh, with Bud Selig and the Milwaukee group, uh, the Brewer group, to sell the Pilots um, to Milwaukee.
1: Yeah, it, it, it's it's uh, this is through the prism of history, right? So this, it's really hard to believe that you know before basically by the not even really by the official end of the season everybody was you know both Daly and Soriano were at the point where they would literally be reaching out to move or sell the franchise i mean not even after one if you will fully complete and and uh postmortemed uh season right um I, you know, was it? It almost feels to me like this stadium thing, right? Because of its delay, um, I, I, it's not like people didn't know that this was, you know, that that the plan was going to be in the next couple of years for the stadium to eventually get built, right? I mean, I, why would you fritter away what took so long to get there in the first place? Um, You know, why not adjust the prices, say, next year? Why not, you know, try to make some more temporary improvements to the stadium, knowing that ultimately at the end of the road, maybe ill-defined still, that there was going to be a brand new stadium at the end of all of this.
2: Right. And, And I think most people figured by 19, by, you know, the end of 1969, early 1970, that the stadium wouldn't be built in a particularly timely manner. But still, it would surely be built, maybe it would be possible to move in in the middle of the 1973 season at the worst. So, yeah, they had to, they had to last two or maybe three more seasons in order to get into the Kingdome. Um, but, you know, that was a real hope. And, and, you know, one of the things is that eight major league teams made less money than the Pilots did partly because the Pilots charged so much for their tickets, um, they, they did get the higher margins. They did get uh, a good deal of, uh, of, of money. Um, they, had, they had better attendance than four teams, and then there were four other teams that charged maybe more reasonable ticket prices. Uh, and so the Pilots had more revenue uh, than, than these, these other teams. And they were just ready to move. And I, I think it was the frustration with the way the stadium was going it was a feeling that people in Seattle, like I said, they just they don't like baseball that much. Um, again, even today, Seattleites love winning teams. If if they're baseball, they don't much go out for losing teams. They'll go out for losing football teams, but not for baseball teams. And I think it was that even more strongly, um, stronger in in 1969. Um, there didn't seem to be a whole lot of hope. But uh, uh, again, I, if there's a villain in the book, it's Bill Daly because he he reneged on his promise to keep the, the pilots around and he could have kept them around for sure. All
1: right. I, just a couple of quick questions on this as we round third base into and sliding into home, hopefully, for this conversation, which has been great because, you know, I, I learn a ton on these these conversations. And, uh, you know, having only lived in Seattle for about a year and a half, I was, you know, I'm completely naive to all of this stuff. Uh, Where was the American League and or Major League Baseball in all of this? Right. Where where, is there any backstop? Is there any financial, um, you know, support or help or, or, you know, uh, does anybody uh, reach out to Major League Baseball? I mean, again, you're there for not even a first season and you've got the stadium at the end of the horizon. Why do you just abandon it so quickly? It it just it, it boggles my mind again through the lens of history.
2: So the story of the final days of the of the Pilots kind of talks about uh, the the American League. Um, they the Daly and the Sorianos had made a handshake agreement with Sea League and the Milwaukee Brewers to move to move the Pilots to Milwaukee for the next season, which meant the 1970 season. Um, it was sort of an open secret uh, from October on. And um, Seattle sent a delegation uh, to the next meetings uh, later on in October, um, and they had, they had a fellow. Uh, his name is Fred Dans, who was uh, uh, an owner of um, movie theaters and other recreation uh, facilities in Seattle. And he was going to be the leader of the local folks who would buy out the pilots, who would buy the pilots from, from Bill Daly. Um, He had kind of a hard time. It turned out that uh, the Bank of California had had made the pilots a $4 million loan, and they were calling in that loan. Uh, So he had to raise $4 million more than he thought he had to raise, and he just couldn't do it. Um, The final backstop was the person that pretty clearly through all of this this time, the 1960s into uh, 1970, was the business leader of the city of Seattle. His name is Eddie Carlson. Um, he was, um, he was the, the head of the Weston Hotel in Seattle. He ultimately became the head of, um, well, the combination of Weston and United Airlines, UAL, uh, Incorporated, and, and moved away from Seattle uh, for some time. He was really good and he put together a consortium to replace the Dan's consortium he was probably the motivating force behind Dan's but he put together a new consortium and he wanted it to be a non-profit community-based consortium and his reasoning was i there's no way that he could get people to put up enough money to buy the pilots but if he approached them under the the idea that they were doing their civic duty, they weren't buying a baseball team, but they were helping out Seattle, he could probably get the money, and he did. He got enough money from private sources. Um, he was able to uh, twist the arm of the Bank of California to reinstate the loan, um, and he went to the, the next final meeting, and he had... He had enough money, probably to get the pilots through most of the 1970 season. Um, the American League didn't like the nonprofit part. I don't think most of them really understood what he was saying. Uh, I think that that they believed that that he was saying that every owner uh, should run his franchise like some kind of charity sort of thing. I certainly, uh, Charlie Finley heard it heard it that way. They deliberated and deliberated and they rejected Carlson. They appropriated, they, they gave $650,000, this is the American League, uh, gave $650,000 um, to Daly to run the team one more year. $650,000 was not enough. Uh, what they were hoping is that it would buy time and they could find some other owner that would keep the pilots in Seattle, um, That that wasn't going to work. Finally, um, the the company that Daly and Soriano ran, Pacific Northwest Sports Incorporated, declared bankruptcy. They went to bankruptcy court. Uh, They were declared bankrupt. I guess PNSI Pacific Northwest Sports Incorporated. They were bankrupt. The the holders of that that corporation were not bankrupt. Again, um, Daly had an obligation to pay up almost eight million dollars. Um, it was pointed out during the bankruptcy trial that the American League had in its charter that if a team was declared bankrupt, the league would take over the team. The bank the bankruptcy. Judge waived that provision uh because he said there's just no way that it's going to work out. He declared the team bankrupt and then immediately the the sale to the uh the brewers to milwaukee uh was consummated
1: but all this so, all this, all this took all this time i mean all the while there was this sort of uh lead up to this is the spring of nineteen seventy right where I guess people at least on the the playing field where the team were going through the motions of of beginning and actually uh, getting into a a preseason, no?
2: They they started spring training with Seattle um on their on their uniforms and um ended it at least maybe in in Peoria or Tempe, Arizona, but for sure on the field in Milwaukee on the first day of the season, the Seattle had been ripped off and Brewers had been stitched on um, in its in its place. Uh, there is a legend I don't I never was able to confirm it, and I looked really hard that the equipment truck went to Saint uh, Salt Lake and waited for a phone call as to whether to proceed north um, or to go east to Milwaukee, and the phone call came, and they turned right and went to Milwaukee. Again, I think it's a legend, um, but uh, in, the, in the words of uh, uh, the man who shot Liberty Valance, uh, when the legend becomes fact, print the legend.
1: Yeah, well, I mean, uh, apocryphal or not, I mean, it, it it it's it feels like it fits very well into this story. I mean, look, here's a team that that got birthed relatively quickly, was hastened into its uh, into its uh, founding and its uh, its uh, uh, first ever season, and now its second season. You know, similarly uh, under weird circumstances, uh, you know, uh, has literally days to kind of get going, and to the point where their uniforms were. Uh, essentially you know holdovers from what was should have been a Seattle uh uniform in in a new city mm-hmm. it, it's just it is it, it's mind-boggling it's absolutely mind-boggling this whole story of how the this 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 in, a current iteration of the Brewers came to be how the pilots sort of came and went but all right so let's get into um, and I'm sure we'll go into this much more more deeply uh in in future conversations but let's uh let's uh slide into home shall we say with to strain the analogy further. Uh, into uh, what sort of comes out of all this? Because it wasn't all bad uh, at the end of the day. Um, uh, but I, what what transpires after after the pilots have left? Uh, are is there a huge outcry in the city, or are people just really upset? Is there they're weeping in the streets like the Brooklyn Dodgers when they left for L.A. or not? And and what what was what then became of this stadium thing? uh and maybe you can kind of obviously it seems like the coda occurs in nineteen seventy six when major league baseball keeps uh, uh i don't know a promise or comes back again uh perhaps this time obviously for for good
2: so in in Seattle, I would describe it as consternation and finger pointing and the sports writers for sure uh were upset they they didn't have a team uh any longer and it it didn't it didn't kill their jobs but they wanted a team desperately for the people of Seattle. It was embarrassing to lose a major league team after one year, you know, the, the Seattle, which felt or felt like it had made a step to become uh literally major league had lost its major league status. Um, so that, that was really embarrassing. The finger pointing uh, people pointed at the owners, people pointed at the fans, People pointed at the city. There's blame to go all the way around. I mean, there, there are just all kinds, kinds of things that went wrong uh, for the pilots. Some of those things an expansion team could expect and could survive. All of them together, probably not. Uh, but finally, the unwillingness of Daly to extend an, another season, um, that's, that's where I point my finger. But it's, he's not the sole culprit by, by any means, sort of in the background is the building of the Kingdom and as I said before, it didn't get finished until 1976. Um, so Seattle really couldn't couldn't genuinely try to attract another team to replace the Pilots and then put it in Six Stadium. Six Stadium stood until. 1979, they held rock concerts and farmer's markets and things like that in it. And then finally, uh, it was torn down, and at its site now is a uh, a Lowe's home improvement store. Uh, but there's still signs outside, and there's a home plate just inside the doors uh, of the store. The big thing, though, was that when when Seattle lost the pilots, the bankruptcy hearing was over, they filed a lawsuit against the American League. The, the, the bankruptcy judge said, you are enjoined against filing a lawsuit against Pacific Northwest Sports Incorporated. You can't, you can't sue the pilots. You can't sue the corporation. But that left everything else open, and so they sued the American League, the state of washington, the King County, the city of Seattle joined together um, to sue the league, and all of that was supposed to be leveraged for a new team and so the there was a, a long, long period uh, of um, investigation and, and and interviewing and uh, and drawing everything together but the the trial didn 't start until thousand nine hundred and seventy six so there 's a six year lapse um, between when the pilots left and when the the case actually went to trial. Uh, there are some complications but what the what the leaders of uh, of the people who are bringing suit uh, said is that we can just get the owners of the American League in front of a jury we're going to win this case. They were pretty much right um, the Seattle hired a uh, um, just an excellent uh, attorney uh, to uh, to represent them or the the city the county and the the state an excellent attorney uh, to represent them uh, he made the owners uh, look look foolish even charlie finley admitted that he felt foolish when he's on the stand being questioned by by this attorney william dwyer um the trial went on for mm, about a week 10 days the american league knew that it was going to lose this part of the trial, they knew they had a pretty good idea if they appealed it that, that finally they would win, but they didn't want to go through the process uh, of the whole trial. And so they granted Seattle a new team. So basically uh, what the, the state and the county and the city do, did was settle out of court for the Mariners.
1: Well, it's also interesting, too, because during that period of time from the pilots departure to the uh, that trial and then the ultimate awarding of Major League Baseball, uh, you had two other um, uh, sports franchises and leagues uh, come into the mix that uh, augured for uh, even more uh, solidification of this uh, looming new kingdom structure uh, downtown or sorry, not downtown, down uh, south of downtown. Uh, the Seattle Sounders of the North American Soccer League, which I think, if I'm not mistaken, actually wound up becoming the first ever event uh, in the kingdom's history. If I'm not mistaken, I could be
2: um, uh, the first sports event, I think the first event, event, yeah. event was sort of an inaugural gala with all kinds of entertainers. There you go. Um, basically, just to see if they could they could work the traffic in the parking
1: sure and then obviously the seattle seahawks right uh along with tampa mm-hmm. bay in the nfl so uh, a lot changed right in that those intervening five or six years uh strangely and almost ironically where baseball was not necessarily even the first thought uh around this new structure ironically right
2: that's right yeah uh the the national football league by 1976 uh, I think there's a pretty good argument that it'd be, it had become the premier sport um, in the United States. In 1969, there was no question about it. It was baseball. You know, the NFL was really interesting, but baseball was 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 still America's pastime. By 1976, um, the NFL was well along, if it hadn't already become America's pastime. So the idea of getting the Seahawks was really great for Seattleites, and again. Seattle just seems to be a football city for whatever reason uh, it was it was a love affair with the Huskies for a really long time and then when the Seahawks came, the love affair uh, turned to the Seahawks and continues to today. The Mariners are really clearly the second team in town for major league sports,
1: okay, so uh, let me ask you this sort of general question as a, as a as a capper here, uh, and then we'll let you do some promotion for the uh, for the book this has been great the um the state of Seattle professional sports now, right? I mean, it just seems like it's teaming, right? The Seattle Sounders, obviously, a very successful uh, franchise on a number of different levels. You've got, obviously, uh, a well-regarded uh, uh, Seattle Seahawks football team, the Mariners, uh, with their their relatively new uh, dedicated stadium uh, and now the uh, the arrival of a uh, uh, perhaps the uh, most expensive, actually the most expensive NHL expansion franchise ever. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think a lot of people still sort of uh, chafe at uh, the Sonics leaving and perhaps NBA baseball, uh, excuse me, NBA basketball finally coming back. Uh, it seems to me that Seattle is uh, uh, very much uh, in and of itself a uh, a sports town. Uh, and then some now, uh, are there any lessons that sort of came out of this pilot's experience that maybe led to this? Or what do you think it was just inevitable, given the size of the city and uh, and the growth of its population and, and the inevitability of it becoming, quote unquote, major league?
2: Yeah, I think I think since the mid to late 60s, Seattle has taken one, two or three quantum leaps toward being a truly major league city. You know, where Boeing was the primary employer um, of, in Seattle in the 1960s, there's just a really long list, um, Amazon, Microsoft, Starbucks, Costco, um, and, and more uh, that makes Seattle. And so you know, one of the things that I say in my book is that major league cities become major league because they have an effect uh, on their hinterland, uh they become economically robust, and that's what draws the major league teams uh into the city and that's what's happened to Seattle is that it has become a city that doesn't need the sonics uh oh people would would love to have the the Sonics or something like that like that back. But it it's, it it wasn't a slap in the face of Seattle. Seattle was a confident city. Um, the what, thirteen years ago or ten years ago, uh, when the Sonics left, it was an awful thing. But it wasn't as though Seattle had was was just a lesser city because the Sonics had left. Uh, the NBA, as far as Seattleites concerned, is just a lesser league because the Sonics left. <laughs>
1: Yeah, well, I, and it, that's a that's a story I want to get into too. Is the whole Sonics and the uh, the hijacking of uh, of uh, of that story and that team and uh, it's at, uh, it's uh, you know the greener pastures supposedly of uh, Oklahoma City. And please, no emails from from you Oklahoma fans. Um, all right, so <laughs> Bill, this has been awesome. Give us uh, give us some promo here. Now's your chance about the book. Uh, what you uh, and even what you have planned for other uh, endeavors uh, in and around sports, if any. Um, for our audience to uh, to uh, listen and hear about.
2: Well, the name of the book is "Becoming Big League: Seattle, the Pilots, and Stadium Politics." It was published by the University of Washington Press, uh, and I checked today, just in case, uh, it's still available uh, on on Amazon. Um, and so, if people are interested in kind of filling in some of the some of the things that we haven't talked about, uh, there's there's plenty more detail uh, in in the book. Um, and um, yeah, I, I think that's about it as far as me. Um, I've I've retired from my retirement. Uh, I'm doing some volunteer work, but as far as researching, boy, it would have to be really good. I've I've been thinking about uh, with the coming of the hockey team. Um, well, wouldn't it be wonderful to write about Stanley the Stanley Cup uh, winning Seattle Metropolitans? But uh, it just seems like too much work. So I'm not sure if I have any more more sports articles in me.
1: Well, look, if you want to be on this show again, you better damn well get the book on that book because I think uh, it'll absolutely be relevant. Uh, And frankly, look, and we we talk about this a lot on this show. Um, You know, it's interesting to see sort of modern day sports and the leagues and the teams and and, uh, in in certain situations, there is a warm, fuzzy uh, and uh, solid embrace of the past. Uh, I think the Seattle Sounders are a really good example, uh, but arguably, say, Major League Soccer, uh, not necessarily warmly embracing of, say, the old North American Soccer League, where the original Sounders franchise began. So it, we we see this and feel this tension between uh, that which came in the past with uh, you know the big modern, uh, big money uh, pro sports machinery that exists today. Uh, it almost feels to me sometimes that uh, the history of sports and teams and leagues, uh, especially those no longer with us, uh, are more conveniently remembered. Uh, than they are sort of um, uh, deeply and richly, and I, you know, look. I, if it were up to me, I would absolutely want to go deep on that. Uh, the story of, of Seattle and this, the history of hockey there before uh, the arrival of this uh, to be named team. Um, so, you know, for what it's worth, here's a little uh, uh, a little uh, ounce of encouragement coming from. Uh, from our little uh, our little podcast board here, and uh, perhaps some of our listeners too might uh, uh, rally around that cause. But uh, we do appreciate this work and this conversation. Uh, I learned a lot and uh, I look forward to hopefully getting some more information about this team uh, and uh, and more of Seattle sports because there's plenty more uh, to explore for sure.
2: Well, thank you very much for having me me with you. I really enjoy talking about the pilots once again. Uh, it's it's a really interesting time uh, in the history of Seattle and in the history of baseball, I think.
1: Well, there you have it. Uh, our thanks to Bill uh, for, uh, you know, an interesting investigation uh, into a team that has uh, always been a curiosity to me. And uh, I suspect to uh, many of our listeners as well. And I hope that we go to uh, uh, some other uh, conversational uh, explorations uh, about this uh, this team and this year and this league uh, the, the American League, the Seattle Pilots. I especially, would love to talk to Jim Bouton uh, at some point. Uh, obviously, Ball Four, the uh, sort of iconic work, not only of baseball but uh, his uh, his year uh, with the Seattle uh, Pilots. Hopefully, we can get him. Uh, on a future episode uh, if he is uh, willing and able Uh, but uh, in the meantime uh, your homework assignment is to buy a copy of bill mullins's book and it's called again becoming big league seattle the pilots and stadium politics it is published by the university of washington press and uh, of course you can buy it wherever you find good books Uh, but of course uh, if you'd like to give us a little love uh, in your pursuit of that book, by all means, go to please go to goodseatstillavailable.com, our little website devoted to the show. You'll find all the old episodes of and all the other stuff about this show, but also where this episode listing Just search it up uh, and you'll find a link to this book uh, from that uh, that little uh, that little link. And uh, by doing so, you'll give us a, a little shekel or two. And we appreciate that, of course. And yes, com is the place to check out all of our great stuff, our great sponsors uh, you'll see some uh, imagery and uh, some other fun stuff, and we're always building more uh, attractions there beyond, of course, every single episode of this little show as we almost get close to the century mark of uh, of the number of episodes we've done. And, oh, my God, I can't believe we've done this. All, 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 so many of these already, but uh, we uh, look forward to uh, making more of them for sure. Uh, it's also the place you can find all of our social media uh, places. You can find us on Twitter at Good Seats Still. You'll find us at... Uh, Instagram at Good Seats Still Available. There is a uh, Facebook page uh, devoted to our little show. Uh, you can find us there. Uh, what else? You can send us some email, of course. You can say uh, directly to us or, or click from the from the website. But if you want to do it directly, that's hello at Good Seats Still Available dot com. And uh, yeah, it's all good. And uh, we appreciate your uh, checking us out, bookmarking us and uh, and interacting with us on social media, your suggestions, your comments, all of that stuff we love. We also love our friend Jerry Payne uh, in a platonic way, of course, Uh, and uh, his team at Podfly Productions. He and they are the ones that are uh, uh, carefully crafting all of our little bits and pieces to make this uh, sound somewhat like a decent and entertaining show. And uh, if you want to learn more about them and their services, if you're interested in podcasting generally, uh, by all means, check them out. They are at Podfly.net. Okay, we're going to leave you with uh, not only our thanks and our well wishes until next week. Uh, we're going to leave you with, uh, as we promised at the top of the show, uh, the uh, the full uh, 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 song. Yes, the Pilots, the Seattle Pilots, had their own theme song. They were only around for a year. Uh, but they had a really cool uh, theme song, uh, and it's on, uh, of course, the Pilotune record label. It's the official song of Seattle Pilots. It's called Go, Go, You Pilots. Uh, it was written by uh, Ron Belcher, who is a well-known uh, sports broadcaster in the Seattle area. Uh, and uh, it uh, went under the pseudonym of Doris Doubleday and his command pilots. Uh, here it is. Uh, as we send you off into the ether, go, go, you pilots. Take care, everybody. Go, go, you pilots, you proud Seattle team. Go, go, you pilots,
0: go out and build a dream. You brought the majors to the evergreen Northwest. Now, go, go, you pilots, you're going to be the best. Welcome the Yankees with instructions and all stocks and royals from April till the fall. American leaguers, you've got what's known as class, so